All right, the only announcement that we have, thank you, Vance. The only announcement that we have tonight is that this coming Saturday morning, we have men's prayer breakfast, and so you come to men's prayer breakfast. We talk about a lot of different things as it comes up, but one of the things we frequently talk about is some current events from a biblical perspective, which is what we're talking about tonight in this summary lesson. A lot of people, when they walk away from church or Bible class in many places, they have a lot of information about what the Bible says, but it somehow never gets translated into um, discernment. Even when it is a picture is almost painted in front of them so that they can see exactly what is going on. And I had a time when I spent... I was in Connecticut at the time, and I had taught a very clear, at least it appeared to me and just about anybody else who was there, lesson on how to apply the divine institutions to a particular problem that this nation was facing that had to do with an election that was coming up. I believe this was in the year 2000. And that evening, a lady who in the church who was rather young in the faith and had a very distinctive voice called into a liberal talk show and said her pastor said and said just the opposite of what I had said. And some in the congregation heard her and knew instantly who it was. But it just confirmed in me that God calls us sheep, and that includes pastors calls a sheep, and it is not a compliment. So it is important to be well informed of the scriptures, but to also learn how to uh, think critically, not what we think of today. When you read of a lot of things going on in certain uh, academic and educational spheres where they're teaching critical race theory, if critical thinking, if you don't instantly think do they mean critical thinking as critical race theory thinking? That's important. Critical thinking is to learn the Word of God so you can apply it to the issues of life. One way you can do that, reading some good literature, and I just happen to have this placed up here on my, on my pulpit tonight, and it is the November-December copy of, of uh, Friends of Israel's magazine, Israel, My Glory, and there is um, several good articles. One, the first key article is, it's called It's Not Luck, It's Providence, by, written by Steve Herzig, who is, I believe, Vice President of Friends of Israel. He spoke to us, got to know him when I was up there in August. Uh, the second article is on Kadosh, 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 which is Hebrew for holy, 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 written by Bruce Scott, who was our fearless leader during that time. And Bruce is one of the very few people I know who, when he defines holiness, he says, God is in a class by himself. He is distinct, singular, peerless, and perfect. That is what I've been teaching holy means. doesn't mean righteous or pure. It means one of a kind, distinct, unique, none like him. He does a good job. <laughs> simple article. And then there's an article um, later on, if I can find it, has to do with, yes, 
Unearthing Truth with Randall Price, Discovering the Danite Migration. We studied that not too long ago in Judges. So it's a great article by Randy, who will be the keynote speaker at the Chafer Conference coming up March 4th through 6th this next uh, this next year. But they always have current events type of things in here. So they'll have a lot of information about what is going on uh, in Israel. They have great material. They have a lot of, lot of good stuff. So I just, uh, and there's an, also an article on God's holy Mishkan, which is the Hebrew for the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle. So that's a, that's a good, good place, a uh, good place to go. So uh, before we get started, we'll pray and then we'll stand up and we'll go through our timeline. And so everybody spreads out. It's Tuesday night. We don't spread out. We get together. We get close. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer before we focus on our prayer to to the Lord this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, it's good to know and be reminded that you are unique, you are distinct, you are God alone. There is no other. You are one of a kind. You are the creator of all things. And Father, we can't even think without the fact that you providentially keep us sustained and alive in order for all of the physical energy molecules and whatever else goes into it to produce our thoughts, but also to keep our souls alive. If you stop sustaining us, all things would vanish. Father, we thank you that you you loved us in such a way that you gave your one-of-a-kind son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for your word to teach us how to think about your creation and about the world to think, teach us how to live, how to um, understand one another, to be gracious to one another, love one another, how to apply your word to all of the issues of life. So, Father, help us to understand these things tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand up. We'll go through our timeline as we start this lesson eight, we're going to cover the whole lesson tonight, so uh, we're just going to hit high points. Most of you know it. It's just good review how biblical truth helps us interpret the world. So here's our timeline. Uh, we have our uh, creation, fall, flood. You ready? Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, call of Abraham, Exodus, Ten Commandments and the giving of the law. Then we have the conquest. And then you have the united kingdom with one crown, one kingdom. And then it's divided. And we have two crowns for the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And then because of their apostasy, they are both taken out. And then there's a partial return. That's the Old Testament. Then we get into fulfillment in the New Testament with the birth of the Savior. 
He is going to be crucified on the cross. He will be buried. He resurrected from the dead. Forty days later, he ascends to heaven. Ten days later, he sends down the Holy Spirit, and you have the birth of the church. The church age ends when Jesus comes in the air for the church age believers at the rapture. That is followed by the seven years of the tribulation. Then Jesus will return to the earth and establish the 1,000-year millennial reign, and that will end with the great white throne judgment. Very good. Okay, this is the framework of Scripture. And so what we have looked at is these first uh, four events, the creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel at the creation. Emphasis was on the creator-creature distinction that man was created in God's image. This is what it sets human beings apart. What is going on today that should cause you to reflect upon this second point, the value of understanding that man is created in the image and likeness of God? A lot of Q&A tonight. Maybe we ought to have a microphone out there. But what's going on? What? No? That's part of it, evolution. What else? What's been dominating the news for the last six weeks? The brutality, the mutilation, the murder, the culture of death that exists in the Muslim Brotherhood and all of its manifestations, including Hamas, Hamas, ISIS, um, uh, Islamic Jihad, all of these are just spinoffs with different names, different masks, but it still is, it's still the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a culture of death. Nothing makes them happier than the death of a Jew. It's all about death. And they have no respect for human beings as human beings. They, they've rejected the, the fact that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. So that's just one way that you should be thinking about it every time you hear these kinds of stories. And then the establishment of the three divine institutions, um, individual choice, responsible choice, marriage, and family. Then there's the fall. Man wants to be the creator. Man wants to replace God. And this is followed by his sin, choosing to test God. Does he really have our best interests at mind? Let's eat this fruit he told us not to eat. So they want to determine truth for themselves. And that leads to spiritual death, which is separation from God, is evidenced in the fact that they are hiding from him when he came uh, to see them. This affected who they were. This affected everything. It affected the physical reality of earth. It affected the physical laws of the universe. It affected the animals. It affected vegetation and all of God's creation. It groans under a curse. It affected the divine institutions so that none of them function in anything other than a corrupt way. And yet there's the hope, the promise of the Savior. Uh, Then everything goes haywire for the next generations. You end up with uh, the, the everybody lives around 900 years. But by the time that Noah comes along, Actually, Enoch, because we saw that Enoch was a one who proclaimed the grace of God as well. So there's warning, probably two or three hundred years of uh, 
gracious warning about the coming judgment. And then there is the flood. God hits the reset button. And in love for the human race, God annihilates all but eight. All but eight drown and many in horrible deaths. So if you come at this with a human viewpoint definition of love, you're going to say, God is cruel. But if your focus is on the victims, not on the ones who are perpetrating the evil, and, you're, and that the victims are the human race that will survive in Noah and his families, then you understand for God's love for the human race to continue and to prosper and to fulfill his promises, that's exactly what he had to do. So love is not the little sentimental thing that many people uh, make it out to be. There are wonderful aspects to love, but there are some harsh aspects to genuine biblical love as, as well. And so God floods the entire earth. He reinstitutes another form of the creation covenant with Noah and then establishes a fourth divine institution which is um, uh, government, human government. So we have these five events that we've gone through in the last several months as we've gone through. I've had a lot of Tuesday nights when I wasn't here, so instead of going through uh, seven lessons in 14 weeks, we did it in about 16 lessons, but it took us about about five months, a little over five months to do it. I'm not going to be missing that many Tuesday nights between now and the beginning of May, so I hope that by then we'll be into the third um, the third module of this. So we have these events, the creation, fall, flood, ta- uh, Noahic covenant, and Tower of Babel. Now, a lot of times, as I pointed out earlier, a lot of people just go away. We learn a lot of interesting things about what's in the Bible. We learn names, places. We learn about archaeological details. We learn all of these things. But how does it help us to think? That is a difficult thing to address. Uh, part of that is due to the, is under the responsibility of God, the Holy Spirit. Another part of that is that we have to think in order to learn how to think. I can't think for you. Charlie Clough can't think for you. Other people can't think for you. You have to learn to think for yourself. And so what they have built into this curriculum is various exercises uh, to help um, help people think through where to go in the Bible to find out answers to various things. So here we have some problems. Now, the first two horizontal lines are the lines that are in their their. Um, uh, in their charts, and then I added three at the bottom because they are very current issues. So people have questions about death. What happens when you die? Uh, is there something life after death? On what basis is there life after death? Do we have reincarnation? Or is it just nothingness and that's all there is? Uh, what about obedience to authority? What do you do when you don't agree with the authority, especially if the authority is maybe your parents or your coach or your teacher or professor? How do you handle that? Why is authority so important in God's plan and in the Bible? What about accidents? How do you deal with friends or family of those who, like on this last weekend, there were six people that were killed because of an accident in downtown Houston at 2 o'clock in the morning because one person was ran a red light, 
when he smashes into an SUV, he bounced off the SUV and hit a homeless person. The guy's just trying to survive the night, and he died. And the guy driving the, the car died, and then um, four people in the other car died. And a couple of people have survived. I haven't figured out where they were, uh, but th- that's that's what happened. How do you explain that? Young people, people in their late 20s, early 30s, still had a lot going for for them. Three of them were football players at University of Houston. Um, they had some relationship, I believe, with First Baptist Church. So we know some of them were probably saved. A woman uh, driving that car was also killed. Uh, horrible. How do you explain these accidents? Problems in marriage. Mar- all over this country, we have, uh, for the last 20 years, the divorce rate has gone down, which some people might think is a good thing, but that's just because people aren't getting married. And so if you don't get married and you just decide to give it up, you just give it up and you don't have a divorce, so it, you're not, that doesn't go on the, on the legal record. Uh, technology. What role does technology play? Is technology good or evil? Uh, is the internet good or evil? Is Facebook good or evil? Is, is X, formerly known as Twitter, is that good or evil? Uh, should we as believers participate in that? How do you think about technology? Uh, racism. We have a lot of talk about racism. We have in this country, but it's not just limited to this country. There's always been racism, and we want to define racism as between, first of all, blacks versus whites, whites versus blacks. Then you have racism in relationship to um, many other cultures. You had racism among the various American Indian tribes. You had racism probably among the pagan tribes in, in Western Europe 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Um, disease, where does disease come from? How do we deal with disease? How do we deal with plagues? Things like that in nature. How do we deal with those who think they are, are pushing us to get a cure for disease that hasn't been adequately tested? The three across the bottom, we have war. We have two wars going on in Ukraine and in Israel. How do we explain that? Why does this happen? Why are there these continuous wars and the things that happen? What about economic inequality or injustice, which has become a code word for we need Marxism? We need to change the inequalities of what we have today to go to something much worse, which are the inequities of Marxism and much more destructive of freedom. So these these are issues. And so uh, how do we address these? We need to be able to say, I want to go to God's Word and know how to talk about and learn from these things. So we have a quiz tonight. So here's five over here on this side. Um, Tom, why don't you pass these out for people over here and then... One, two, three, four, five, six, eight more on the other side. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Bryce, can you get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight? Okay. There you go. Just pass those out. So you're going to take a little test. So we're going to take a couple of minutes to do this. Most of you will will be able to do this fairly quickly. And this is in the handout in the notes. So what you have is two columns. The first column on the left 
identifies seven problems. And these are the seven problems that are really across the top of the screen here, not the ones I've got on the bottom. But if you answer the, the first seven, then you can understand how to apply the word to the three on the bottom. So on the left you have the first problem is a plague. So that's working from the right, top right. You have plague. Then number two is legislation of homosexual marriages. Number three is the belief that technology is evil. Number four, the or you could go the other way and say the belief that technology will solve all our problems. Either way. Uh, fourth, a fatal accident that appears meaningless, like the example I had. Fifth is racism. Sixth is lack of sense of authority in young people. Seventh is medical research to push back aging. Then you have seven events that relate to the themes that we have talked about uh, in these first uh, four, four or five episodes. Noah's knowledge of vineyards and winemaking and his lapse into drunkenness and nakedness. What do you think that you would use that for of the seven options on the left? Number three, the belief that technology is evil. I can see why you said that. That's probably it. I think it is. Um, Now, a couple of these, I think, they have specific answers, but a couple of these... um, I would need to to look at the um, uh, belief that technology. Yeah, that you said that's A, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm, I've got my numbers and letters backwards. Okay, and number one is a plague of highly contagious diseases. What would that relate to? Hmm. B as in boy. Is that what you said? Yeah. It could be B as in boy, or it could even be related to, um, you know, the problem of, of um, DNA, F, although that specifically relates to another one. But, you know, we have constitutional defects from sin. And so I would say that that, 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 that comes close too. Okay, so you have um, the, first, the first one, let's start there, the plague of highly contagious disease. That's number one. That would be B, God's curse upon the ground. Because the whole, um, and I would say the curse upon the animals, because you get microbes, germs, viruses, all that would be part of the animal, not just the curse upon the ground. Second, legislation of homosexual marriages. Where where would you go to to talk about that? G as in golf, divine institution of marriage. Number three, the belief that technology is evil. Barb answered that A. Noah's knowledge of vineyards. So he's using technology in the making of wine, and it leads to a problem. But is that that a necessary solution? Okay, a fatal accident that appears meaningless, and that would be what? That would be E, God's death sentence for mankind's Rebellion. We live in a world where we die. Five is racism. That would be F. 
which is Adam as the original source of DNA, and then Noah's family as the next source of, of DNA. Um, six, the lack of sense of authority in young people. Where would you go to begin dealing with a solution for that? That, that would be C, uh, divine institution of family. And then seven, medical research to push back aging. Well, you got to start with D. There's a decline in lifespan after the flood. Now, I'm not saying that those doctrines give you all the solutions and everything, but it's a starting point for being able to think biblically about the problem. What, where does the problem begin? And that's, that's what we see there. So you have, as we've seen, two ways of looking at these things. Number one is trusting God. If God is our ultimate authority, then we're going to be able to think through these seven issues from a biblical perspective. That doesn't mean we're going to have all the answers or know everything, but it gives us a framework biblically for understanding those things. But what happens is if we can't answer the question and you're left in a situation where you just feel, well, Maybe there aren't any answers. Maybe people are just believing in God because it gives them hope. And so there's no real grounding in, in an absolute that is, that is true for everyone for all times. And so what happens then, if there's no answers given, then things begin to fall apart. And you don't know how to answer or deal with the issues of, of life. And I will tell you, and you, some of you have heard me tell this parts of my testimony, but when I was finishing up my third year in college, a couple of things happened that um, I was really just like, what am I going to do with my life? And I went to uh, Camp Penile for a weekend camp as a counselor, and Randy Price was put in there with me as a co-counselor. And I was sitting there one afternoon talking to Randy, and I said, you know, it just doesn't seem like there are answers to these questions that are raised in the liberal classrooms and sociology and uh, psychology classes and everything else. And um, are there there hard and fast answers? And he had Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and gave it to me. And I went home and read it during the next week and never looked back. Um, And part of the, the reason that we are going through this is because we need to help our young people and kids know that as they begin to address issues in the classroom, that there's a biblical framework. God does have an answer. God has spoken uh, to these things. So we have to understand that as we study the Bible and we look at all these different doctrines, that they perform an interlocking network that provides a protection for our thinking. And it helps us to think through that God has solid, biblical, scientific answers. They don't, by scientific, I mean it doesn't really run counter to science. There's a lot of fake science out there. And there are answers uh, to everything. And today, as opposed to when I was, uh, I had a lot of answers, especially on the evolution creation background, because I'd spent a lot of time studying that when I was in high school, but not other things. And so that was that was just important to go through there. People need to know where to go to get the answers. And you can go on the Internet and get any kind of answer you want, 
but you know that you need to know the respectable places to go, like in Evolution, Answers in Genesis, Institute for Creation Research, Master Books, a few other places like that. But there are a number of other really solid apologetics websites that have wonderful material that help people think through these things. So I'm going to run through these fairly rapidly because we know most of the answers. This is really designed, if you're listening to this and you're teaching in Sunday school or prep school, this is really designed to get the kids to divide up into two or three groups, depending on how many you have, to to think through what does the Bible say, not to sit there and share their opinion, not there in, in a lot of Sunday school classes and adult Sunday school classes, the, the, the uh, teacher becomes nothing more than a facilitator, and I always call him a facilitator of nonsense. And they sit there and say, well, what do you think about this passage means? And then ask the next person, well, what do you get from this passage? And nobody ever says, well, what does the original author intend to say in this passage? And let that be the framework for understanding the Scripture. So we'll, I'm just going to kind of go through these uh, over the next probably 40 minutes, we've got seven to go through. So I'm going to spend about five minutes on each one and just think our way through. And this is a good review of everything that we've done in the last three, three or four months. So we have God's curse upon the ground, upon the earth. I think it's important. Sometimes these words could mean ground or earth. But I think here I would translate it earth because he is cursing the physical uh, the physical chemical structure of planet Earth, okay, so that it's not going to function like it did prior to sin. But God built enough flexibility into it that it's going to function a lot like it did. But there are going to be uh, there are going to be difficulties and there are going to be uh, ver- various problems. God created everything in the earth, and so he created it in such a way that it could handle the reverberations caused by the curse of sin. Now, we learn in the New Testament, uh, Paul makes this statement, but it's grounded on God's creation. 1 Timothy 6.17, he says to Timothy, command those who are rich or wealthy in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, what? Who gives us richly all things, all things, all, think of all the natural resources on the earth. 3,000 years ago, people didn't know what petroleum was for. They used it maybe in, in lamps or something like that, but generally speaking, they didn't know all these many natural resources we've discovered in the last 3,000 years in the technology to have automobiles and jet planes and all kinds of other things, computers, and and God has given us all that richly. It, it's all there. Recently, as I was reading about some of the <clears throat> ways in which God has built solutions to problems in the environment is that there are microbes. They've probably been there all along right? They've been there all along. But now we've discovered that they will be able to digest, work their way through like an oil spill. And the result is it cleans up the oil spill. 
So God has built, and I used to call them, God's built little scrubbers uh, into the environment so that when we mess it up, these things are dis- either discovered or they're already there to help help clean it up. God's God's provided all of this. Genesis three seventeen tells us, uh, God speaking to Adam says, "Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it." All the days of your life. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, see how many people of you were kind of tired by 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Because whatever you were doing, even if you weren't doing much, it's the result of being, of toiling, living in a fallen environment. And of course, as we get a little older, that fatigue uh, presents itself a little bit more. And so we have this problem that responsible work has become laborious because of sin. And Romans 8.28 tells us that the creation was subject to futility. goes on in verse 21 to say that the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. So it's in a futile situation. It's in the bondage of corruption, verse 21. Verse 22, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Uh, verse 23, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Every When it says the creation, what part of the creation? You look at the earth, you look at all the different spheres of biology, zoology, dendrology, all of the other ologies. What was not affected by the curse? You look up at the sky. You are looking through the atmosphere. How is that affected by the curse? You look out into space. You see the moon. You see uh, the planets. You see star systems. How is that affected? All of that's been affected by by the curse. So what we see uh, laid out here in this chart, uh, this line describes mankind. This line, lower line, describes creation. And so from the timeline here, from the creation to the fall, everything is good. It is as God intended it. It is not flawed by sin at all. That is normal. That that means that everything from the fall on is abnormal, subnormal. It is, uh, the word here that is used is evil, Evil seems to apply more to something moral than the creation. It's just corrupted. Everything is corrupted. When you look at the word evil as it is used later on in Scripture, it is used to describe those who are rebelling against the authority of God, primarily in idolatry. That's what evil is. Evil is related to a failure to submit to the authority of God. So I would say that that it is corrupted. I would use that as a better word there. Uh, finally, we get to the judgment at the very end of the millennial kingdom, and then God will finally and forever separate good, and everything where we are will be back to normal, and there will be a freedom from sickness and death, 
and um, in the among mankind, and then creation will also be free from corruption, decay, and death. And so, uh, and evil will be isolated and restricted. Revelation twenty one four, and God will wipe away every fear, every tear. I got new glasses, and they're not quite right. Every tear from their eyes, they shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. So that brings us to the second issue, which is uh, homosexual marriage. And it's not just a matter of homosexual marriage, same-sex marriage. It's a matter of the whole uh, perverted alphabet, LGBTQ, P, I've seen five or six more letters. My mind won't go that far and this is the answer is in is number G, divine institution of marriage. God created. You, know, you, you think back. There's no male or female, and we're going to anthropopathize God just a little bit. And so God's in eternity past, and He says, "Okay, I'm going to make this creature. I'm going to call him a man, and he's going to have a counterpart that's going to be perfect as a counterpart physically, emotionally." Uh, psychologically, spiritually, everything to this man. And I'm going to design them so they are going to be uh, absolutely perfect counterparts to one another. And so when God created Adam and he created Eve, it wasn't, oh, well, this sounds like a good idea. Let me just, let, let me give him two legs and two arms and two eyes and a nose and, and we'll give her a little more shape. And Scripture says, literally in the Hebrew, it says, the man was made, the woman was built. Now you can do whatever you want to with that language. And so God, may, and they're designed perfectly as counterparts to one another. But because of sin... Instead of one man for one woman for life, now you have um, one man, two womans. By the time you get to the end of Genesis 4, you have the beginning of polygamy. It only takes about three or four generations before you start really seeing the destruction of the divine institution of marriage. So you have these uh, first three divine institutions, the first that everything is built on this. When man loses the ability to govern himself in responsibly, to make responsible decisions, then society will collapse. And you can see back into the post-World War II period at least, but I believe it has roots into the late 19th century, especially due to the influence of Sigmund Freud and others, of absolving man of all moral responsibility. And this is a cancer that ate away at the psyche of the culture. And so once you eviscerate the culture of responsible choice, then it's going to cause problems in marriage, and that will in turn cause problems in family. But the first three divine institutions, and one of the little circles that's up there, that's not up there, is the circle of how do you choose leaders to govern your city, your state, county, your state, and your nation? How do you make those choices? And to me, the foundational choices are around, we'll add a sixth divine institution, and that's your checklist. Who comes closest? Nobody's going to be perfect on all of them, but who comes closest to affirming and legislating 
that which supports these six divine institutions. And unfortunately, uh, the way the trend goes, government has absconded with much of your personal responsibility. The more personal responsibility we have that's not taken away by government, the more freedom we have. But when we give up personal responsibility so that the government takes responsibility for our retirement, takes responsibility for many, many things so that we don't make, so that even if we make bad decisions, it's not self-destructive, then we lose freedom and the more uh, authority the government has. So God designed us purposefully, and these divine institutions are the patterns that should govern us socially. Genesis one twenty one. God blessed Adam and Eve, said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's his responsibility. Five things, fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Five things we're, we're responsible for. In Genesis 2.18, 2, God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper, an assistant for him. And God caused a deep sleep to uh, fall over on Adam, and the result was he took out a bone so that the woman is from the man. And that means we're a unity biologically so that Christ can die for every human being. That's ultimately it. If he had created Eve separately from the man, there wouldn't be that uh, human continuity. But we have DNA continuity, all human beings. That's why redemption doesn't apply to the angels. Each angel is created individually. There's no corporate angelichood. After the fall... Man is abnormally mentally, he is abnormal spiritually, he's abnormal psychologically, he is abnormal physically. And this is the, the consequence of what takes place. We see in this chart that in the upper level chart, it is man's sinful choice. He wants to live independently of his creator and, uh, or excuse me, he wants to, yeah, he refuses to live dependent upon his creator God. He says no to God and yes to I can do it myself. And so down below what we see is at the first level, the creator, we have God's revelation. He tells us what to do. He gives us the framework for thinking. And the creature says no to God's revelation. We're going to do it on the basis of what we think is best. And so that leads to um, that leads to destruction. I think I missed and should have put another another diagram there. Anyway, Romans one twenty six. In terms of marriage, uh, God gave them up. When man said no to God, God says, "Okay, have it your way. You want to try it? Go ahead. I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to I'm going to give you permission to try to do it your way." And we'll see what happens. So he removes some restraint and things go from bad to worse. God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchange a natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, in other words, in the same way as the women, uh, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Now, the LGBTQ crowd will say, well, God doesn't condemn any, homosexuality anywhere. 
can you read? Just because the word homosexual, which wasn't invented until the late 19th century, by the way, isn't used in Scripture doesn't mean it doesn't talk about it in other words. I won't make a catty remark. Um, So this is what happens is there's this same-sex attraction, but that goes back to sin, and it goes back to a failure to fulfill individual responsibility. God can restore all of this in the unbeliever. One of the best books, if you are dealing with anyone in your sphere of life that is a Christian and struggling with same-sex desire, one of the best books to read is a book by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And it's the surprise, I think it's something like the surprising um, conversion. Is that what it is? I can't remember the name of that title. It's a long title, the surprising uh, conversion. Uh, and it's her testimony where she was a militant feminist lesbian and hated God, hated Christians. And now for the last 20 years, she's been married to a pastor. They, by the time they got married, it was too late to have kids. So. Um, they have fostered, I think, many kids, 14, 15 kids, something like that. And so she is, and she speaks on college, university campuses everywhere. You ought to watch some of her YouTube videos. And she has done a remarkable job. I, I could not have the patience to deal with hosti- the hostility that she deals with. And she's so good and kind and gracious in the way she fields their questions. So we come to the third area now, the belief that technology is evil. The answer to that was Noah's knowledge of vineyards and winemaking. That was the technology. So he had, we, when we studied this, we talked about you have to understand soil conditions, weather conditions, temperature conditions. You have to understand this uh, growth cycle of the grapes and the grapevines. You have to understand all of those things. Noah's not some primitive uh, who came out of a cave after the flood. But he's a man who built the ark, who had a grasp of technology before the flood. He was pro- probably a very successful farmer before the flood. So he knew exactly what what he was doing. But it got away from him, and perhaps the post because the environment was different, the post-flood environment, the alcohol was a little more stout than what he expected, but he ended up getting drunk. So it's not the technology, it's just the use of technology that is a problem. So this ties us back to understanding uh, the whole issue uh, with, with the flood. So in Genesis 6, God gave him the solution to the situation. And... Um, I think God probably gave him a lot of instruction. If he didn't know how to build already, he gave him uh, at least a general blueprint, what's recorded in Scripture. And so the ark was going to be 300 cubits long. If the cubit at that time, which most people say was maybe a little bit more or less, we're not sure, it was 18 inches, which is kind of the average, then that means it was 450 feet long, a football and a half. And um, uh, the width was 50 cubits, which is 75 feet. So it's 75 feet by 450 feet. It's long and it's narrow, which is, and it's square, it's deep, it's three floors. And so this would have had, it would have sat low in the water 
and it would have had great stability in in the flood. So after the flood, he begins his operation as a former, drinks of the wine, gets drunk, and is um, in his tent uncovered. He just passes out naked. His son treats him with disrespect. I don't know if anything more is something is hinted at, but uh, I don't know that we can say that. Uh, the Bible is clear that the problem isn't drinking wine. The problem is excess. That's clear all the way through Scripture. When I went to Dallas Seminary, early on at Dallas Seminary, there was a real understanding of grace when Dr. Chafer was there. Uh, there's the story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but it's a good story. And so if uh, whether it's true or not, what's the line from the man who shot Liberty Valance? When people believe the story, the legend, rather than the truth, print the legend. Well, uh, there was um, uh, Dr. Um, oh, his name escapes me. Um, Church of the Open Door in in California. He's from Waxahachie, Texas. Um, oh gosh, y'all know him. You listen to him. He talks funny. Uh, what? J. Vernon McGee. So J. Vernon McGee had gone to a really liberal Presbyterian seminary in Virginia for a year, and they were very legalistic. So he was from Waxahachie, Texas. And which is just south of Fort Worth, and he decided he would go to um, Dallas Seminary. He heard about this new school; it's about ten years old at that time, and so he um, he went there. He wanted to make sure they were grace oriented, so he got the biggest, fattest, smelliest cigar he could find. And walked into Davidson Hall and smoking this big cigar to make sure that it was grace oriented. Nobody said a thing. And there were no, there was not a code of conduct for students back then. This was like 1933. It wasn't until Dr. Walver became president that they had a code of conduct which which uh, encouraged students not to partake of alcoholic beverages. And the reason for that was, the, and and the New Testament faculty kidded Walvert about this. You'd hear these little one-liners because, uh, you know, Dr. Honer used to love to say, when Jesus turned into wine, it was wine. <laughs> It was wine, Dr. Walvert. He'd just say it under his breath. But Dr. Walvert, yeah, it's always important to know your isagogics, to understand the backgrounds of people. His mother was a temperance marcher. So he grew up with all of this legalism all the time. So, But the Bible doesn't say you can't partake of alcohol, be- alcoholic beverages. It just constantly tells you not to be drunk. But what's going on here is really that uh, wine was being used in a spiritual way. Uh, it is addressed to the Ephesians in Asia Minor. One of the gods that was worshipped was Dionysius, the god of wine. And so they you would get drunk, and then the god would sort of enter into their a body take possession and they would speak in tongues and this kind of thing would happen in contrast to that we're to be filled not with wine but with the spirit by means of the spirit and um then you go on to Deuteronomy 14:26 understanding that God gave all of this he says for you shall well, they have a feast every year you shall spend the money that for whatever your heart desires for oxen or sheep for wine or similar drink for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. So God gave man food, and man either uses it to one degree for gluttony or uses it to the other degree by repulse, staying away from food and all kinds of things. 
Um, then in terms of uh, work, he either overworks, becomes a workaholic, or he becomes lazy and irresponsible. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, exercise, taking care of your physical body, your physical health, you overdo it in terms of uh, taking care of your body and working out and eating all the right things and just obsessed with that, or you just don't take care of yourself at all and you have lots of health problems as a result of that. And then the last one is in terms of relaxation. Uh, either relaxation and vacation becomes your primary purpose in life or it's all work and you don't know how to, to rest. So man abuses everything because of the sin sin nature. So this is how it should have been with Noah, and he's the underlord under God, and he would be the master over the vineyard and over the wine. And yet what happened is that uh, the vineyard, the wine, uh, became his master. So we often let the creation become the master over us. The fourth thing was the um, fatal accident that appears meaningless. So that's God's death sentence on man. Death occurs all of the time. It occurs in war. We we hear stories of young children who get leukemia, cancer, all kinds of horrible things because we live in a fallen, corrupt world. But when God created, he said that everything was very good. In Genesis 2.15, he put man in the Garden of Eden. He had responsibilities to tend and to keep it and to trust God and obey God. That's option number one on the left. But what he did was he decides to evaluate God and make up his own mind so he did not trust God or and he ate from the tree. The result of that is Romans 5.12, that therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. So we live in a world of death, and we have some cultures and some people and some religions that produce a culture of death. And that's why when you come to the end of Deuteronomy and again at the end of Joshua, Moses says to the people, later Joshua, well, you have to choose between life and death. And every day we have to wake up and we have to choose between life and death to one degree or another. But you look over at the Muslim Brotherhood and their choice is death, death, death. It doesn't matter. The hardest thing for people in the West to comprehend is that for those in the Muslim Brotherhood, nothing is better than to die killing a Jew. It does not matter. You cannot reason with somebody like that. You cannot bargain. You cannot negotiate. As Golda Meir said, you cannot negotiate with people who want you dead. And that's what we have going on right now. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, it's a tremendous passage talking about once again that in this house that God has given us that is corrupt, we have this building from God. Uh, in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If Verse 3, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Verse 4, for we who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that is in glory, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So we see again that our chart here that eventually evil will be confined into the lake of fire. But until then, there will be death, there will be disease. It won't be as severe in the millennial kingdom. 
Uh, much of the curse is rolled back, but not all of it until we get to uh, the end of Revelation. There we read in Revelation 21.3, uh, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, uh, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. God will come to dwell with us. It's such a revelation when you read Revelation to realize our destiny isn't in heaven. We often talk that way. Our destiny is to be on the new earth as God will renovate it to actually fulfill what God designed the human race to do to begin with. And God will tabernacle, he will live, he will make his dwelling with men on the earth. In verse 4, where there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor tears, nor crying, there will be no pain for the former things have passed away. But there, even in the Old Testament, they taught about resurrection. In Daniel 12, 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. It goes back to the first divine institution. We are held accountable for our uh, choices. Uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15 describes the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, uh, only unbelievers will be there. There will be two books. There will be the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by things which were written in the books. And so then there is also... um, the books that record all of the deeds and then the book of life. If your name's not written in the book of life, then you're cast into the lake of fire. You're judged according to your works. Do your works stack up to perfect righteousness? And if they don't, then you go to eternal punishment to the lake lake of fire. Hebrews 9.27 destroys all the the, um, Buddhists, Hindus, it is appointed to man to die once, not 1,500 times going through various different cycles of life. It's appointed to men to die once, and after this, the judgment. No second chances. You've had all the chances in the world. I am reminded of Romans 1 and Luke 16. Romans 1 says that God's existence is evident to them from his creation, And God made it evident within them. There's an external witness that screams that God exists. And there's an internal. The reason you have people who are atheists is that they have suppressed that truth for so long that it's buried in the 10th basement down, wrapped up within eight uh, coffins that one fits inside the other, uh, wrapped up in a chain so that that knowledge of God can't get out. But every now and then God rattles his chains and people get all upset about what some Christian has said. So we have a choice, as always, either to trust God or to trust man. Then we come to the fifth, which is racism. The answer was Adam as the original source of all DNA. So everybody goes back to Adam, but it went like this. went way out, and you had a lot of complexities of DNA, and then the flood killed everybody except this one family, and we're back to Noah, and then it goes through Noah 
and, and his uh, and his three sons. Acts 17 says that we are made from one blood. We are all the human race. There is all unity there. And so that is, um, that is where uh, racism comes because of sin, because people want to make fun of those and hate those who are different. And so we have these divine institutions. The first three that we went through, uh, responsible choice, marriage, and family, and then after the flood, there is the creation of uh, a fourth divine institution. But because uh, uh, man has uh, turned against his responsibilities as the image bearer of God, which has to do with ruling over the planet, he focuses on himself. And so in this chart, regarding self, he ignores God, makes himself the ultimate authority, Second, he ignores work and instead worships leisure. Third, he allows created things and addictions to be the ruler over him. Regarding others, instead of delegating work effectively, responsibly, and under God's guidance, people abuse and dominate one another. And third, mistreatment, discrimination, and racism result from that. Regarding God's creation, exploit and destroy creation, or the other extreme, they worship the creation. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says, uh, during the tribulation, and saw that there was this huge multitude in heaven uh, made up of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God. There is no division by skin color in heaven should not be here. Lack And then sixth, the lack of a sense of authority in young people. This is to be addressed in the family. That is where authority orientation is to be learned in the family. That doesn't mean everyone will. That doesn't mean if your kid's a rebel that you failed. Your kids have volition. They have responsible choice. And there are some people who do wonderful jobs as parents, but they have kids that just don't want what their parents are offering them and providing uh, for them. So we have, and this is the third divine institution of family. And so some of the important responsibilities of parents are to teach the ways of God. And I say, start reading the Bible to them from the first day, start talking about the gospel from the first day. Play good hymns, Christian music, not contemporary Christian music. Get good music, good instrumental music. Uh, Bach, others that were classics. And I'm not saying that it, all classical music is good. It isn't. Neither uh, am I saying all contemporary music is bad. But you have to understand music is a language, and some of it is bad and some of it is good. And uh, if you need to read about this, read some of Scott Aniel, A-N-I-O-L. Read some of his material. He's very, very good and well-educated in these fields. But we have to teach the ways of God, have them memorize Scripture. I don't know how prescient my mother was, but she says that the first complete sentence that came out of my mouth was what she taught me to memorize, and that was 1 John 1, 9. 
but she had me memorizing a lot of scriptures when I was when I was young and then we were memorizing scripture in Sunday school at church and we were memorizing scripture at camp and all and then I went to a good news club for a while where we memorized scripture and I was amazed at how many times the Holy Spirit would pull one of those verses out of a dark hole in my mind right in the middle of one of my first messages, first sermons as a pastor. And I was just so impressed. Wow, where'd that come from? But I had learned these as a child, and some of that just sticks with you forever. So uh, also parents are to teach their children how to live with people, friends, and society to love one another, to have good manners, to show respect, uh, to treat people right, and consequences for when they do not. And third, C, warn of the dangers of rebellion and disobedience. Deuteronomy 6, 5, the parents are in 6, 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children, diligently conscientiously work at it, think it through, have a plan. Uh, it's not just random. All, and you talk about it all the time. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. This isn't literal. It's to say that the hand is what you do stuff with. So it should affect what you do and what you look at, where you go. So these are the th- three important things for a parent. Uh, and the result is that individuals who make responsible decisions, it will lead to strong marriages. That will then lead to strong families and lead to strong societies. Psalm 78, 4 and following, we will not hide them from their children, telling to Uh, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob. History should be the testimony of God's glorious works in history. And verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So before training children, though, parents are to first obey God's commands themselves. So parents should first obey God themselves, then model godly behavior, and third, not be unreasonable. Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers, notice, the father's the ultimate authority in the home. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Titus 2, 6, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded That doesn't mean to be without alcohol. It meant to be clear thinkers, objective thinkers, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Colossians 3.21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Children have a responsibility. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, children obey your parents in the Lord 
for this is right, quoting from uh, Exodus 20, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.31 down through the first part of chapter 13 emphasizes love, that biblical love is the key. Then we come to the seventh one, which had to do with medical research to push back or abolish aging. Is this good or bad? Well, I think it may have some good effects in that we may live a little longer, and but we may remember it less. But we may have may may in many cases have a better quality of life, but we can't really change that that lifespan. And so we go back to the genealogies again, and we see that the lifespan shrunk down to the low 100s after the flood for whatever reason. And then we looked at this other chart as well. So what we have is two choices. You can take the choice of human independence. You're going to decide truth for yourself. Best option you have is evolution. Your mom is a monkey. And then you have all kinds of problems. You're redefining family, homosexuality, pornography, racism, abortion, euthanasia, drugs, no borders. Uh, All of the problems plaguing our culture today are the result of living in the evolution castle. And notice how they're constantly attacking here uh, the God's revelation castle. And so it is the Christians, though, that must take their stand on the Word of God. Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What the righteous can do is keep focusing on the foundations, learning the truth of God's Word, and seeing how God provides a sufficient answer for every issue in life. Okay, that's our summary of these first events, the creation, fall, flood, and Tower of Babel, Uh, those four things. Next time, we'll come back and we'll start looking at the call of Abraham to understand Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is to understand the key to history. Why is there so much anti-Semitism? Bottom line, Because God chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the rest of humanity hates anything that represents God. And that's going to go for two kinds of people, Jews, saved or unsaved, because they're God's chosen people, and Christians, because we're in the body of Christ. And Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, going around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Everything we see has to be related back to the Abrahamic covenant and then to Satan's antagonism to God's plan and purposes through the Jewish people. Remember, it's to the Jew first. The Jews were the first historically to be Christians. And then what happened? Ephesians 2 After about six or seven years, then you have Christians being brought in as the wild olive branches into the body of Christ. So there's this one new man that is Jew and Gentile together. And so we are as much 
connected to the Jews through Abraham, we're spiritually connected. They're physically connected. So we'll get into the Abrahamic covenant next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see how your word gives us the key to understand current events, to understand current legislation, to understand what is happening economically, to understand what is happening socially, to understand the problems that we have are not the result of, uh, uh, though it may be impacted by, uh, education, parenting, all of these other things. The basic problem is human beings are sinners. We're corrupt and we're rebels against your righteousness and justice and there will not be a solution until the end of the millennial kingdom help us to understand these things and express them with biblical love we pray this in christ's name amen